I'm going to read to us from Genesis 45, which is on page 35 of the Bibles. Some of you will find it really helpful to read along with me. Others of you may find it helpful just to close your eyes and listen and to soak in the Word of God before Des preaches to us. So Genesis 45, starting at verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence? So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be ploughing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to prepare, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt, Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor according to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Our New Testament reading comes from Acts. And it's Acts chapter 7, starting at verse 9 to 16, which is on page 775. So Acts 7, starting at verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was no grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. 
On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Well, if you could keep your uh, Bibles open to that Acts passage, that'd be great. We'll, uh, we'll get back to the passage from Genesis 45 in a minute. But why don't I pray very briefly before we start? Let me pray. Dear God and Father, uh, we come to you now wanting desperately to hear something from you, some word of comfort, some word of correction. Um, and we pray that Uh, as you speak to us by your spirit through the Bible, um, that we might listen to you carefully and obey you as we should. Amen. The sovereignty of God is one of the great truths of the Bible. According to the Bible, God controls everything in the universe, everything that has happened, everything that will happen, and everything that's happening right now. God is in charge. Now, we only have to pause for a moment to realise that this is a pretty comforting thing. Our world is not a meaningless series of events in which nothing we think or say or do is of any consequence. Nor is it merely some kind of orderly but impersonal mechanism unwinding itself like a clock as God looks on from a distance, unconcerned as we slowly get ground up in its cogs and springs. Nor is it like a playground, full of fights and petty thefts, but supervised by only one lone worried teacher, one who dearly loves to stop all the fights and return all the lunch money, but can't, simply because they can't be everywhere at once. No, God is in control of the world, personally, directly and totally. Now, I think we find this thought most comforting when we're suffering. To suffer, and yet to realise that I suffer in a world ruled by a God who has everything in hand, is just incredibly comforting. It's what Christians have been murmuring into the ears of troubled people for the past 2,000 years. Don't worry. God's in control. I'd be surprised if you hadn't said it yourself on occasion, and I hope you have. Don't worry. God's in control. It seems so simple. And yet we only have to pause for a minute, one more moment, to realise that it's really not so simple at all. To see that these words actually open up a huge can of worms. Because put yourself in the shoes of a sufferer. If God's in charge, they think, doesn't that also mean he's in control of my suffering? And isn't that just another nice way of saying that he's responsible for my suffering? A man's wife dies in a car crash. He sees through the fog of his grief, the hospital chaplain mouth the words, God's in control. And even through that fog, he nods in agreement. 
but rather than those words kindling the first sparks of comfort, rather they feed the growing fire of his rage. Yes, God is in charge and he took my wife. And then another moment passes and another thought occurs to him. If God's responsible for my suffering, isn't he also responsible for the sin of the person who caused it? Wasn't it God who got the teenager drunk and put him behind the wheel of the car and drove him headlong into my wife as she came home from work? Or put yourself for a moment in the shoes of the sinner. The teenager sobers up in the remand centre. The prison chaplain mouths mouths those same words to him. God is in control and there's nothing he can't forgive. And even as the waves of shame pour over him, he nods in agreement. But the words don't comfort him. They appall him. If God's in control, if God's in control of my actions, didn't he also do this terrible thing with me? Aren't we both guilty? And if God's as guilty as I am, who's he to forgive me? Aren't we all humans and God just in this sordid mess together? I think tonight's passage, the one that we read out from Genesis, is, is so crucial for our thinking about this because I think it speaks directly to these questions. And it speaks directly to these questions because it tells such similar stories It tells us the story of a sufferer, Joseph, and the sinners who were caused that suffering, his brothers. But most importantly, it tells us a third story, the story of a sovereign God who can turn even the worst suffering and sin to his good purposes and whose story alone makes sense of ours. Now, let me tell you up front right from the start. This is a can of worms we won't even come close to putting a lid on tonight. Tonight's passage doesn't even come close to answering all of our questions. It's just one piece of the puzzle. But that's okay. There'll be other nights to look at other puzzle pieces. For the moment, all we can do as humble sufferers and sinners is look at the piece in front of us and ask God to make himself clear us to us through it. So bearing that in mind, why don't I pray just one more time before we get into this. Dear God, we are we're confused. We suffer and we sin and yet you tell us that you're in control. And we wonder what that tells us about us and we wonder what it tells us about you. God, please glorify yourself tonight. Show us that you are good and that you want what is good for us. Amen. Well, we're going to be following that theme of stories tonight in the four points of tonight's sermon. The first point is simply this. It's Joseph's story. Joseph's story of suffering. Now, I want to say from the outset that the account of Joseph in Genesis is a fantastic read. It's a sensational read. It's a story of epic, sweeping themes. Loyalty, betrayal, envy, lust, doubt, love and forgiveness. It's got dreams and deserts. Exotic locations, twists, surprises, donkeys. It's full of peasants and slave traders and pharaohs, brothers and friends, sons and their fathers. I mean, there is a real reason why people have made films out of this stuff. 
Now, I should also say it is far too long for what to cover in one sermon. It's 13 chapters or about a quarter of Genesis. But thankfully, we don't have to read all that, just get the gist of the story. As God has really given us the Reader's Digest version in the reading we had from Acts 7. And as we look at that now, and I'd invite you to look down at Acts, we see right from the beginning that it's clear that Joseph's story is one of suffering. Look there in verse 9 of uh, Acts 7. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. Let's just flesh that out a little bit, particularly if you're not familiar with the story. The patriarchs are Joseph's 11 brothers, and they're jealous of him because he's their father's, Jacob's, favourite son. They're also jealous of him because Joseph is an annoying little twerp. He dreams that one day his entire family will serve him as slaves, and very tactfully, he decides to share that dream with them. This irritates his brothers so much that one day, while they're out grazing their flocks, they sell him to a caravan of slave traders and, to cover their tracks from their father, fake his death at the hands of wild animals. Now, Joseph's troubles, if it's possible, only really get worse from here on in. He sold to Pharaoh's head bodyguard, Potiphar, and, although he rises quickly through the ranks of his administration, it all comes crashing down on him when his boss's wife, totally unfairly, accuses him of molesting her. He's promptly thrown into prison. However... God's with him. A natural leader, Joseph gets put in charge of the prison and it looks for a while like he's actually got his ticket right on out of there when he helps a disgraced official get back into Pharaoh's good books. But it seems to be that it's only as soon as the lockers clink back on the official's door that it's out of sight, out of mind. The official forgets his promise to Joseph to help him out in exchange for his favour and he languishes in jail for another two years. Finally, Joseph gets his break. Pharaoh's been having troubling dreams and when he learns of Joseph's ability, he calls for him to interpret them. And he does so. Egypt will have bumper crops for seven years, but then for the following seven, it and all the nations around them will suffer a terrible famine. Pharaoh was so grateful for this little piece of insider trading that he makes Joseph his prime minister. Acts summarizes it nicely. You can see it there in verse 10. But God was with him. And rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him rule over Egypt and all his palace. You see, Joseph's suffering finally seems behind him. In fact, to celebrate his final change in fortune, he even names his son, his first son, Manasseh, the Hebrew for forget. You can see it there, uh, well, you could read it in uh, 45, 51 of Genesis. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh forget and said, it's because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. His suffering is over. He can finally leave behind the family that rejected him. Or at least he says he can. I really suspect he can't. And I think what he calls his son is a giveaway. Does he really mean to forget something by constantly reminding himself that he's forgotten it every time he calls out his son's name? No, I don't think so. God's raised him up from suffering, yes. But I think that bitter thread goes throughout Joseph's life, throughout Joseph's story, 
and he never quite shakes it. But that brings me to my second point. If Joseph's story is one characterized by suffering, well, the brother's story is one characterized by shame. You see, the years have passed since they sold their little brother to the slave traders. But the time of famine that Joseph had predicted finally comes around. And you can see it recorded there in verses 11 and 12 of Acts 7. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. Now what happens when they get there, I think, is really telling. They arrive in Egypt and go to the same person that everyone goes to who wants to buy food in this famine-stricken time, Joseph. But the thing is, they don't recognize him when they get there. Now that, when you think about it, is actually totally understandable. Joseph was probably a teenager when he was sold, but now he's all grown up. He's not wearing the, kind of the, the normal clothes of a Hebrew shepherd. He's now dressed like a prime minister, an Egyptian prime minister. But most of the point, I think, he's actually just the last person they ever expected to see, especially as the newly appointed prime minister of the local superpower. But if they don't recognize him, he recognizes them straight away. But he doesn't do what we'd expect. Reveal himself to them in, their, in his newfound glory and execute them immediately for their treachery. No, instead he keeps his identity quiet and begins showing an unusual interest in their family. Whether they have any brothers, maybe a younger one, maybe called Benjamin, who they've left behind. Maybe a father, a very old father. In fact, he shows such interest in their family that he actually plays a trick on them to force them to bring Benjamin to him. He accuses them of spying and tells them that they'll only be exonerated if they go home and bring back their little brother for them, leaving another brother, Simeon, as security. See, it's at this point in the story that I think we really discover the true depths of their guilt. Because it's straight after he asks for that to happen that they cry out in pain. Read it in 42.21. Surely, they say, we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. If we had any doubts before, we know now for sure. Shame has hounded these men for year after year after year. Ever since they sold Joseph. Why else would they put this problem down to an event that happened so many years ago? And it keeps hounding them. They go back to fetch Benjamin and on the way, Joseph plays another trick on them. But rather than suspect him or someone else, they immediately put it down to God's punishment. 42, 28, they cry out, what is this that God has done to us? When they've returned with Benjamin, are about to go back to Canaan again, Joseph plays yet another trick on them in which Benjamin is actually forced to stay with them permanently. And yet again, they presume that it's God's doing. 44.16, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. Do you see what's happening here? They're so guilty. Their consciences are so raw that they see God's hand in every turn of the story. Their guilt, as far as they can see, has finally caught up with them. And it's crushing Well, that leads me to my third point, our third story. 
Because if Joseph's story is one of suffering and the brother's one of shame, God's story is one of sovereignty. You see, it's here that the story really comes to a head, and here it'll be helpful if you turn back to 45, where we'll be staying for the next few minutes for the rest. Joseph has asked that, he's, that he be able to keep Benjamin. But Judah, one of his brothers, still not knowing who Joseph is, tells him that he just can't do it. But his father, Jacob, is so old and so frail and loves Benjamin so much that if he returns home without him, Jacob will die. But it's here that something very unusual happens. Joseph breaks down. The idea of his father dying seems to snap something inside his head. Look there in verses 1 to 2 of 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. But it also becomes clear that he can't keep his identity a secret anymore. If he does, if he forces the issue and keeps Benjamin, well, he risks actually killing his father. And so he finally confronts them with the truth in what must make this the very climax of the Joseph story. And you see it there in verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they are terrified at his presence. You see, everything hangs in the balance in this one moment. For the first time, the sufferer and the sinners come face to face and recognize each other. And the sinners are rightly terrified. Joseph repeats himself even more clearly, even more pointedly in verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now that their secret has been uncovered, they really are without hope. This is how their stories are going to end. Joseph will put an end both to his suffering and their guilt with the one action. He'll destroy them. That's how their stories are going to end. Or at least that's what we'd think. Until we see that there is one more story to tell here. A story that will change everything. And you see that there in verses 5 to 7. They're absolutely crucial. Follow them with me. Verse 5. And now, do not be distressed. And don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years there will will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to save your lives by a great deliverance. You see, unbeknownst to Joseph's brothers, their story and Joseph's story is part of something bigger. God's story. Yes, they did sell Joseph into slavery. But it was also God who sent him there. In fact, if you look in verse 8, it was actually primarily God who sent him there. Look in verse 8. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Yes, they did send him, but God was the ultimate sender. God was the ultimate sender who simply used the brothers to do his bidding. 
And yet, if there were two people causing one action, there were two very different intentions behind it. The brothers' intentions were just flat-out evil. They sold Joseph out of hatred and jealousy. But God's intentions were good. He sent Joseph to Egypt to save lives. I think the, 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 some of the very last verses in this book sum it up perfectly. Chapter 50, verse 19 and 20. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. He sent them down there to save their lives from the famine. You see that in verse 6. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be ploughing and reaping. But God sends them down to Egypt, not just for that immediate plan, not just immediately to save their lives, but for an even bigger plan. A plan that we've actually been looking at in the entirety of the time we've been in Genesis, right from chapter 1. You see, it's been the plan all along, when he first promised to Abram that he would make him a great nation and put him into a great place, a land, Canaan, and that it is there that he would save his people and there that he would redeem a people for himself. And yet God also knows that the inhabitants of that land, the tenants, if you'd like, haven't yet been so bad that they deserve to be kicked out. Genesis 15 tells us that it will be another 400 years before they deserve to be invaded by this nation that will come from Abraham that's fed down through Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And then in the meantime, God needs a place for them to be looked after. And so he sends them down to Egypt. Sends them down to Egypt so they can be looked after and cared for. Even though that care will turn, as we see in Genesis, to great suffering where he will keep his promise to them and they will multiply and become great. A nation that can actually take the land of Canaan in the time that God has appointed. And we see that tension between human intention and God's intention throughout the rest of the Bible's history. The Canaanites didn't intend for their land to be taken over by God's people and yet they were. We see it all the way through right through until the very culmination of God's plan. When he sends, not Abram, not Joseph, not David, but his own son to come and bring people into the final promised land of peace with him. That even though people destroyed him and intended to do so, that even their sin could not stand in the way of it. Acts 2 verse 23 puts it perfectly. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Was the cross one of God's accidents? Like Joseph? Or rather, not like Joseph. No, not at all. Are human beings responsible for what they did to him? Absolutely. But was it used in God's plan? Totally. And yet the funny thing that we see here, as we look at this, this passage here of Joseph, is that when he tells his brothers this information, he doesn't do what we'd expect him to do. If I were Joseph, I know exactly what I would do. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. I'm the winner, you're the starving ones. Ha ha. But you see, he doesn't do that at all, does he? 
No, it's quite the opposite. Look there in verse 5 again. And now, don't be distressed. And don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it all worked out in the end, didn't it? God sent me here in the end to save you. Now, God did it, or Joseph does this, to actually comfort them. Now, what exactly is he doing? Is Joseph saying that it doesn't matter what you do, so long as it all turns out well in the end? Is the entire ethical system of the Bible summed up in the words, all's well that ends well? So long as no one finds out, so long as no real damage gets done, your intentions don't matter, God's in charge, he'll run everything, you'll never be held responsible. No, not at all. Joseph's brothers are still totally responsible for what they did. Just because their evil plan didn't work out, doesn't stop it from being evil. To use a, a really petty example, I had a, a friend of mine who, uh, he was routinely half an hour late to absolutely everything I ever invited him to. So every time I invited him around for dinner, he would always be there exactly half an hour late. I could almost set my clock right. So when I invited him for six, he would routinely turn up at 6.30 when we were putting dinner on the table. And so I, I fixed the problem. I would tell everyone else who was coming that dinner was at 6.30. I would tell him that it was at six. And true to form, he turned up bang on time, 6.30. Now, was there any harm done? Well, no. He turned up at exactly the same time as all the other guests. The meal didn't get cold, the ice cream stayed frozen, everything was fine. But was he still late? Was he still responsible for being late? Yes, of course he was. Because as far as he was concerned, dinner was at six. Now, it's a trivial example, but I think it makes the point. Just because these people didn't get their way doesn't mean that they were innocent. No, they meant what they did, and it's their intention that made it sinful. So why is he comforting them? Well, I think the key is in verse 7. Because he says, don't be distressed, not because God is making something generally good out of what you've done, because he's saving people generally. It's because he's saving you. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. His brothers are to be grateful and to rejoice that things work out well in the end, not because that stops them from being sinners, quite the opposite. It's because even though they are sinners, God forgives them. God shows them grace. And that even in their very sin, God can work to save them. Is there any other grace in the world like it? And that's how God's story makes the crucial difference to Joseph and his brother's stories. You see, Joseph had suffered terribly at the hands of his brothers. And yet God's control over their actions doesn't drive Joseph away from God. But it drives it to him towards him. Because God intended that suffering for good. God intended it to prosper Joseph, even though it hurt at the same time. There is a world of difference in an action depending upon its intention. There is a world of difference between the surgeon who cuts you open so as to heal your body and the murderer who slits you open to kill you. 
And because it was his brother's evil intentions that were evil, not God's, he doesn't accuse God of evil. Let's be very clear about this. God is never the author of evil. James says that he never tempts anyone to evil, and nor is he ever tempted himself. But rather he intends everything for good. And it's the answers to Joseph's brother's problems as well. Because they've sinned terribly. And yet precisely because the good thing God used from their sin was to save them, they were given grace. God is so gracious to these people that he can use their very own sin to save them. There's a mural in King Street in Newtown where I study. It's the one, I don't know if you've seen it, it's it's of Martin Luther King. It's got an Aboriginal flag in the background, you might be familiar with it. I was speaking to a friend of mine and they told me where it came from. It was painted by a guy who came over, an illegal immigrant, and he came from England. Um, But the reason he came was he was actually on the run. He'd fallen on hard times where he was living and he'd murdered someone in a squat. And he ran away from the law. But he came into contact with a church because the guilt of that sin kept working and working and working away at him until he realized something had to be done, that it had to be fixed. And as a result of that guilt, he became a Christian. And he packed himself off back to Britain, and he turned himself in, and he's now currently in jail, serving the sentence for the murder with which he'd previously got away with. He did a terrible thing. He was totally responsible for it. And yet God is so gracious that he can use even that to call a sinner back to him. See, it's important to understand our suffering in the light of God's bigger purposes or it just won't make sense. It's important to understand that God is not some arbitrary bully or some powerless teacher futilely blowing a whistle at you. Now, if you're suffering, particularly if you're a Christian, the Bible's promise is that it is never pointless, that it is for a purpose and a good purpose for you. But I think this also shows us, as we see in Joseph's example, that when we understand the grace of God shown to us, it must drive us towards forgiveness. Everyone here, will have been sinned against by someone else. And everyone here will be sorely tempted to hold that against them. Joseph had been sinned against more than almost any of us, I can almost guarantee you. And yet when his brothers come to him, face to face, does he hold it over them? No, he welcomes them in. He weeps and hugs them and kisses them and speaks comforting words to them even though by rights they should be slain on the spot. See, the grace of God doesn't just affect my position with God, but affects my position with other people, people who've sinned against me. When I know the extraordinary lengths to which Jesus has gone to pay the price for my sin, the suffering I put him through, and yet the salvation which he has given me freely, I can't not forgive my brothers. And so, brothers and sisters, if that is you tonight, 
If you have been sinned against by someone here, I'm not saying that sin doesn't matter. I'm not saying that the fact that it might all pan out stops the sin from being sin. No, no, it does. They intended it for evil, and it's evil. But we've been forgiven. And so we must forgive. But for those of us, finally, who are in the other camp, who don't feel ourselves to be so much the sufferer but the sinner, I want to leave you with these ideas. And it's just a source of never-ending comfort to me and millions upon millions of people across the world. There is nothing, nothing so wrong that you can have done that God cannot forgive you. You can do nothing to thwart God's plans. You cannot muck it up. You can't muck it up with the little things. When you bumble that evangelistic conversation, when you make up, like you just say something that you really didn't mean to and you think to yourself, oh gosh, I've just really screwed up there. Well, yes, of course you've screwed up. And yet, God's a big boy. He'll really be okay. You can't muck up his plans. But you can't muck up his plans for you either. If you've put your faith in the man whom Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph pointed towards, the man Jesus Christ who came to die for you, it doesn't matter how guilty you are or how shame-faced you feel, you really can be forgiven. You can be forgiven right now. And if that's you as a visitor here tonight who is just investigating the claims of Jesus, or if you're a Christian who feels weighed down by the guilt of the mistakes you've made in the past, let me pray for you now. And let's come before God. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you are a God of awesome grace who, although our sin is very real in front of you, your plans can never be thwarted by it. That although evil men sent Joseph to Egypt, you put it to your purpose. That although evil men sent your son to the cross, it was all part of your plan. And so we come to you now, shaking but with a growing confidence that there is nothing we can have done that will ever stop your love for us or thwart your plans. Please forgive us for the things we've done. And please make us not only know, but feel that we are right with you because of what you have done for us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, who alone makes any of this possible. Amen.